0: Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome back for another incredible week of the Power of the Parsha. I uh, I want to thank you all for coming, especially those of you who are brave enough to leave your uh, your Zoom uh, screens on. That's right. We can see. We get to see the crowd. It makes it easier for me to teach. I know for sure when I can see the crowd. If I make a joke and I see no one's laughing. that that helps remind me stick to the stick to the partial rabbi not so many jokes more partial less jokes um and i also want to thank the amazing staff over at yeshiva beth yehuda and partners detroit for enabling this to happen of course they are incredible and they're constantly working as hard as they can to teach all the jewish boys and girls about torah mitzvot and i want to thank the amazing folk at torah anytime it's an app it's a website called TorahAnytime.com. And it has hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Torah content that you can go and download and listen to. I also want to point out, we are now officially on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. So it's actually kind of cool. You can go onto the podcast if you want to listen to a class, if you missed one and you want to catch it later, or you want to you know, catch one f- that we've done previously, here's what it looks like in Apple Podcasts, right? It's uh, right there, Burnham on the Parsha. It's called Burnham on the Parsha. You can search for it. Again, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and a few other platforms. So feel free to find us over there as well. Okay, Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very very busy week this week. We're going to cover, um, we're going to cover forced intimacy. We're going to cover respect for the dead, and hopefully we'll cover some some ideas about kosher food. So let's go to forced intimacy for two hundred dollars. In this week's Torah portion, which is called Parshas Shemini, which is the word for eighth, it refers to the eighth day. It refers to the day in which hold on a second um the day on which the temple was finished uh, being prepared for use and now was the final day that it was basically the inauguration was getting underway and the jewish people were now going to start using the tabernacle on that eighth day though when they first opened the tabernacle for for seven days beforehand the reason why it's called the eighth day is because for seven days beforehand there was practice runs Every single day, Moshe, with, of course, godly help, he would put up the Mishkan. The Mishkan was a, a mobile temple that could be, it was made out of, it was modular. It was made out of all these different pieces and parts. So for seven days prior to the Mishkan grand opening, they, Moshe would break down the tent every night and put it together in the morning, and he would bring all the offerings of course, he was not a Kohen, he was not a priest, but he used to, and he did not wear priestly clothing. He actually would wear a simple white, like, um, cloak, a, a simple white tunic. He did not wear, uh, like, the, vessel, the vestments of a Kohen Gadol, but he, he wanted to sort of show what the practice should look like. So he sort of did a practice run every day for seven days. And then on the eighth day, which was the first day of Nisan, the first day of the second year of the Jewish people going out of egypt from the if you count from nisan and that was the day that the temple was inaugurated it was an incredible day because the jewish people were able to see god's cloud descend upon the tabernacle and with that they knew that god had indeed forgiven them for the sin of the golden calf because if you'll remember after the sin of the golden calf god originally wanted to just wipe out the jewish people and start all over again with Moshe. And then after that, the second step was like, okay, I won't wipe them out, but I don't really want to have anything to do with them. I'll, I'll, I'll have a angel take care of them. We're gonna, I'll, I'll set up my lawyer. I'll make an escrow account. I don't want to talk to them, right? I have obligations. I got to pay alimony, you know, child support. So I'll do what I got to do. I'll send in the payments. I'll send in the monthly payments, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. And then we said, no, 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 God, we, we want to connect with you. And that was Moses' third time on the mountain where finally Hashem said, I have truly forgiven. And to God's great credit, you know, sometimes in a relationship, somebody does something wrong and they ask for forgiveness from their spouse. And their spouse says, okay, I forgive you, but they don't really, really fully forgive. I'm sure you, and look, we're human, it's it's common. So I'm I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of concept. But like, I'm saying I forgive you because you asked me for forgiveness again and again and again, but clearly I'm not really over it just yet. Hashem, to his incredible credit, Hashem says on Yom Kippur, I have forgiven you. The very next day Hashem says, okay, I'm moving back in. Let's, let's make me a house. I'm moving in with you. I'm gonna live right in middle of the Jewish camp. I'm not just saying I'm gonna be with you. I'm going to be with you. And then they gathered all the stuff together. It was pretty much ready by Chanukah but it was delayed. The final inauguration was delayed until the first day of Nisan, Ben Nisan Nigalu. We have a concept that the month of Nisan is always a month of redemption for the Jewish people to see that God actually came back and dwelled in the tabernacle again, as he had done before, as you can imagine, was a tremendous, tremendous um, sense of redemption. Like We were truly forgiven because on the first day of Nisan, when they erected the tabernacle after seven days of trial runs when they finally had the grand opening of the tabernacle by Yom HaShmini on the eighth day they had the grand opening of the tabernacle and indeed they saw God's cloud come down on the ark which meant God was saying yes I am back here with you you could see it visibly which is just amazing amazing to be able to see God so to speak visibly hovering over the tabernacle, and they knew that they were truly forgiven. There was an incredible sense of redemption, which was very appropriate for that to happen in the month of redemption, Benisan Nigalu, and Benisan Nisan has always been a month of redemption. So that is what happens. Now, while all that goes on, something happened very, very, very tragic. And it was quite a... Um, it was devastating i mean it was literally literally devastating what happened so they prepared all the, the they prepared the offerings there was inaugural offerings that they brought there was all sorts of offerings and then this incredible thing happens this is the book of leviticus chapter 9 verse 24 by dalad Ba hashem and a fire came down from before God from on heaven, and it came down from heaven, and it starts eating and devouring the sacrificial parts that were brought, right? and the fats of the parts, and all the people saw it, and they were filled with joy, and they rejoiced, and they fell on their faces in absolute awe. This is what we call in Hebrew, there's a apostle that talks about our service for God, and it says you're supposed to do gila birada, right? Which means you're supposed to be able to have incredible joy, but also incredible trepidation, right? How do you have joy and trepidation? I'm incredibly joyful that I'm with you. I have trepidation lest I do something that hurts my relationship with you. Ideally, if you have a relationship with somebody that you love, you're constantly conscious you're so happy to be in that relationship, but you're constantly conscious of not doing anything that could hurt that relationship, not saying anything that would be hurtful, not doing anything that would be hurtful to the other person in the relationship with you. So that is a very, very important um, important component. So that is uh, what we should be doing. Gilu birada, rejoice and, um, and, and, be, and have a sense of trepidation and awe and respect. And that's exactly what the verse says. Vayaronu, they had rina, they had joy but they fell on their faces in total uh, respect and awe. Next, and the children, the two eldest children of Aaron, Aaron Akoin, the high priest, they each took their fire pans, and they put coals and fire on their fire pans, and they put on it incense, And they brought before Hashem a foreign sacrifice, one that had not been commanded. They were not commanded. Hashem never told them, come into my house and bring me this offering. They were so swept up. They were so caught up in the joy of the moment. They were so caught up in the sanctity and the beauty of the moment. God is coming to live amongst us. We can see God's Cloud of glory, we can see is fire coming down from heaven. What an incredible, joyful moment. And they just wanted to bring God a meal. They wanted to bring God a present. They wanted to bring God a gift. But it was not commanded. And a fire came out from before Hashem. And it consumed them. This fire just, boom. They came out with their fire pans. They wanted to bring God a gift. Boom. A fire comes down from heaven and burns them to a crisp. There's actually a dispute in the Talmud exactly what that looked like. Did it actually burn their outsides and their insides, or did it only just go into their bodies and burn their insides, and they died immediately, but their outsides still remained intact? But whatever it was, they, they were burned immediately, and they died. Now, if you can imagine, this is one of the most joyous days in the Jewish people's history. It's the day that their first tabernacle their first temple is ever opened and the first time that they see god dwelling in their midst and they were just so filled with joy just a moment ago just a moment before they were filled with joy and suddenly now boom there is this hush that falls across the crowd as they just watched two people incinerated so let's talk about this for a moment okay so this is a very difficult thing because The Talmud tells us that Moshe, in his attempts to mollify, and not mollify, but to comfort Aaron, he basically says a statement to Aaron saying, these guys were better than us. Your two children, Nadav and Avihu, were in certain ways even greater than us. But yet, they died. And how did they die? Just trying to be nice to God. They were just trying to bring him an offering and they were doing it out of absolute love of God. They were so caught up in the emotion of them finally seeing God coming and resting his cloud of glory amongst them. And they just wanted to bring God a present. Could you imagine someone comes to my door, a little kid from the neighborhood. They, you know, let's say for example, I don't know, I fall down, not not I, but Bob, my counter- Uh, my my, my alter ego, who looks just like me, but his name is Bob. Um, You know, he falls down and he breaks his leg or whatever it is. And one of the cute little neighborhood kids hears about that. And they, I don't know, they baked me like a chocolate chip cookie or something or a cake and they come to bring me the cake. And I just go with my, my Tesla coils, you know, like my, my electric, you know, like, I just take them out. You know what I'm saying? I just like, like incinerate them with my electricity. That would be like, what's going on over here. So for starters, what we have to understand is like this. Imagine the following scenario. Imagine I go out, not me, actually of course not me. First of all, I'm happily married. I don't go on a date with anybody. But imagine if Bob, yeah, that alter ego guy. Let's say Bob goes out on a date with a woman. They've never met before. They were set up by friends, whatever it is. You know, they figured they would just have a little coffee, but it was one of those amazing dates. It starts as a little coffee. They thought maybe they'll just end up schmoozing for half hour, 45 minutes, and then each one will go back to work. But it was just an amazing, amazing coffee. Like, wow, they had so much in common and they were attracted to each other and there was charisma, there was emotional attraction, and intellectual attraction. And it was, just, it was just amazing. And they're like, you know what? They both decide on their own, like, let's call into work. We're not even going back. And they end up spending the whole afternoon and it's a beautiful day and they go in for a walk in the park and then they go and they walk and it goes, they go out for dinner. And then after dinner, they, it's like, it's this amazing, amazing day, right? They end up going out for like seven hours. It's like, wow, wow. This is, just, it was crazy, you know? So he goes home and he can't, hey, being Bob, of course, who's my alter ego, who lives in the alter house, not my house. He lives in a different house in a different community that looks just like ours, but it's like, on an alternate planet. So Bob goes home and Bob is like, he's just like, he can't get it. He can't get this girl out out of his mind. He's like, wow, that was like, that's amazing. I think she might just be my soulmate. I've gone out with, A lot of women before, and I've never had this experience before. And I, I think she's the one. And he's like, he is so caught up. He's so enamored, right? He's like, that's it. So the next day, he wants to show her how much he loves her. He wants to show her how much he loves her. So the next day, what does he do? He knows he found out where she lives. He looks her up, whatever. He does a little sleuthing around. He looks it up in the yellow pages, which of course is this thing from. Back in the day, there used to be this book called a phone book. And it was really, really big. And they would deliver it to your doorstep once a year. And it had like phone numbers for people's landlines. These are all things that I'm talking in code for those of us who are like, you know, over 40 years old right so there was this thing called a landline which was a phone that was actually connected to a wall and often had like either numbers or like this rotary thing that you could turn that was called a landline because it was connected to the land it's not one of these things and then it was a uh, there was a landline and then there was like a phone book and you could look up and even had people's addresses and phone numbers of course they could choose to be de- unlisted Um, but anyway so he looks up her name and her number and he finds out and he's like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna make her this surprise of the century because I'm I think I'm falling for this woman she's amazing like wow what conversation and what a first date and that was just amazing and just didn't want it to end so the next morning he gets up real early and he goes and stakes out her place and when she leaves for the day you know she works he, he knows where she works she works at a you know a regular 9 to 5 type of job you know they talked about that on the date he sees her leaving and what does he do he quickly breaks into her apartment and he decides he's going to cook her dinner and he goes out and he goes out to the supermarket and he buys like all the nicest the most freshest ingredients lamb chops and 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 and, and uh I don't know all kinds of fresh salads and he he buys not fresh salads he buys fresh fruits fruits and vegetables you know what I'm saying because he's going to do this for her of course and he goes back to her and, and he buys like a nice bottle of champagne and a beautiful silver champagne bucket and some ice for it and he goes back to her house and he sits in her kitchen and of course he's like he's preparing her this amazing 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 five course dinner right amazing five course dinner right and he got a fresh salad in the beginning and then he makes a soup and he's like sitting in her house and he's tasting the soup, make sure oh, perfecto, perfecto and then a beautiful, you know, meat entree and then a dessert and who knows, yeah, some kind of appetizer. Right, he goes all out. Like he spends the entire day, the entire day preparing to make her this incredible surprise dinner. And then it's getting closer. He knows she's going to be home soon. It's already getting close to 5 and he sets the table beautifully with silverware and crystal and the nicest tablecloth that he brought. Right? And she walks into her house at 525 after a long and particularly difficult day because she had taken off most of the day the day before and she was very behind at work and whenever. She had a long and hairy day at the office and she opens up the door and the guy's like, surprise! And she's like, what? Surprise! I had such a great time with you and I thought like you were so amazing and I just came and I made you this amazing dinner. It's like, wait, you're you're in my house. He's like, surprise, I'm in your house. Yeah, I I made you this amazing dinner because I think I'm falling for you. I think I love you, like, you're amazing. You're so amazing. I made you this whole dinner. I've got five courses for you. Please, please sit down. Can I pull out your chair for you? Can I get you an aperitif? I made some cocktails. She's like, dude, you're in my house. You're in my house, how did you get here? Who gave you permission to come into my house? He's like, but, but we had such a great date yesterday. I, I think I'm falling for you. It's like you think you're falling for me? And you came into my house? You broke into my house? You made me food with my stuff? You hey, look at that, on, on the oven is my dishes? Get out of my house, get out of my house, you creep. What an invasion of my privacy. Get out. He's like, what do you mean? I I just, I love you so much. I care about you so much. I just wanted to be closer to you. This is not the way to get close to me. Get out of my house. You crazy man. I never want to see you again. Now, of course, that's an intense analogy. But the idea is that our love can never, ever, ever become so powerful that it invades someone else's rights, someone else's privacy, someone else's personal space, right? You may have this incredible love and you just want to be close to somebody, but you don't lay, you, you, you can't touch them, you can't break into their house, you, you can't do that thing. That, that's not okay. You don't, set the rules for your relationship with somebody else based on what you want. Because when you do that, you're letting your love for this person or your supposed love or your feelings of love overshadow your respect for that person. In a relationship, respect must come first. Respect must come first. And then on top of that, you can build love. But if you don't have respect, your love is inappropriate, selfish, and disastrous. You, know, you think about it in Judaism, right? We don't allow, we don't have any premarital physical contact, right? How often does it happen that people's emotional connection for another person causes them to try to intimately engage in a way that they're not really ready. That's, there's, no respect for the, there's no respect for the other person often, and there's definitely no respect for the relationship. I mean, I, yeah, there's no respect for the person or the relationship. Hashem says, we're not, we're, not, we're not going down that road over here. I need to set an example right off the bat. Yes, I am willing to move in and to live with the Jewish people But don't you dare think that that means that you can just rush into my room, my privacy without knocking first, without me inviting you. No, 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 no. And a fire comes down from heaven and burns up none of you. They had the noblest of intentions and they truly did. But that emotional rush needs to be tempered with intellectual respect and intellectual respect demands that before I engage on a new level of intimacy with somebody, that i make sure that they're okay with that, that they want to be in this place in the relationship. You know, the Jewish people, it's fascinating. We're, we're right now in that period between between Pesach and Shavuos, right? We're counting up to the Omer. T- today was 11 days, which is 7 one, one week and four days in the Omer. If you didn't say that yet, if you're not counting to the Omer, you could just say it right now in English even. It's a mitzvah. Today is 11 days, which is one week and four days in the Omer. It's a very, very easy mitzvah to keep. So we are counting up to Shavuos. Now we know there's a famous medrash that says that before God gave the Torah to the Jews at Mount Sinai, he offered it to all the nations of the world. And he offered it to the children of Esau. And they said, well, God said, you guys, you guys want my Torah, you, you know, you want this uh, special relationship with me. And you want to follow my instruction manual for life. They're like, hmm, instruction manual for life. What, what does it say in there? And God says, well, it says you can't kill. <laughs> like, I was like, God, I don't know if you got the memo. We are the Romans, right? We are the Greeks. We have this thing called the, uh, the Colosseum. And you know what we do in the Colosseum? We watch people kill each other for sport." Yeah, that's kind of what we do. We send our armies all over the world to conquer and vanquish and kill and 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 take over territory. Yeah, we this whole like you shall not kill thing, that's not going to work for us. Go 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 keep keep moving, God. Keep moving, find yourself somebody else. It's a nice first date, but we're going to end it right here. We'll stop at the coffee. Okay, God. The next people then God goes to God goes to the, uh, you know, to, to the next nation and he says to them, you know, do you want the Torah? And they say, what's the Torah? Oh, it's a special relationship with me. It's this book of wisdom. What does it say in it? It says, God says, you know, it says you can't commit adultery. He's <laughs> serious. God, we can't commit adultery. Do you know that in our culture, this is true about American culture right now. This is actually true about American culture 10 years ago. It might be worse right now, but an American culture of 10 years ago out of, every 100 acts of intimacy shown on TV or movies or whatever it was, 96 of them were not between a husband and wife, right? So they were either between a husband and someone else's wife or whatever it was, any kind of, meaning 96% of acts of intimacy portrayed in culture, American culture, TV and movies was not between a monogamous married couple. So when God says no committing adultery, they're like, God, have you ever watched a soap opera? What are the soap operas going to be about if there's no adultery? Right? What are we? What are we going to? Uh, the desperate housewives of New Jersey, whatever. Whatever these. I don't know what these shows are called. They're housewives. Whatever they're called. Like I. I. I got a feeling. That if we can't commit adultery, that, that we're gonna have to wipe out. I mean, we're gonna have to have to what are we gonna watch the nature channel? Like, what's gonna happen? No, we can't, we can't, God. No, 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 God, I'm sorry. Yeah, this was nice having coffee with you, God, but we're not even sticking around for dinner. And he goes to the next nation, do you guys want my door? They say, Well, what is it saying? No stealing. No stealing? How, how are we gonna make a living if we can't steal? Do you know? Listen to this incredible, like I I actually I don't have the exact stat in front of me. But I remember they did a anonymous survey of like, it it was like a financial consultants and it was like 100% anonymous. And like, they asked people like, do you sometimes do trades that are like not beneficial to your clients, but are beneficial to you or whatever it was. And the numbers that came in with yes were staggering high, staggering high numbers. People coming out of their MBA programs, getting masters in business administration, Right. The numbers of people who were asked, do you feel that academic cheating is wrong? The numbers were. I in high school in America, because of ADHD, I don't know the exact numbers. I have the I had the numbers at one point. I don't have the numbers today, but I can tell you this personal experience. When I was a teacher in a high school in America, I'm not kind of gonna mention which high school, um, I asked everybody to take out a piece of paper and a pen. And I said, Okay, this is gonna be totally anonymous. You're gonna give me empty pieces of paper, it's got just a few numbers, a few whatever just don't write your name or anything on it Number, put a number one and then check it if you have cheated academically cheated in the last three months okay and then put an x after one if you have not cheated in high school in the last three months then i said number two check it if you have cheated in the last year make an x if you have not cheated in the last year and then number three just say when you think about cheating cheating on tests copying homework from other people handing in papers written by other people like on a scale of one to ten one being it's fine it's like whatever and number ten being no you it's totally unethical write down what you feel cheating is on that scale now here is the amazing thing in this class one person did not cheat in the last three months the other the rest of the class did and when it came to cheating in the last year every single person in the class had cheated in the last year and then how you see it on a view of scale of one to ten of one there's nothing wrong with it and ten being like no it's ethically and morally wrong to cheat on tests to cheat on homework to cheat on papers the numbers were like ones and twos I mean maybe I had like one eight it was it was crazy people just don't think there's anything wrong with being unethical anymore. So God comes to this nation. He says, do you guys want the Torah? And they're like, well, what does it say? He says, well, you can't cheat. <laughs> like, how are we going to get ahead? No, thanks, God. Thanks for the coffee. Yeah, go find somebody else. And then God comes to the Jewish people. Do you guys want my Torah? And they're like, yeah, nasa v'nishma. we'll take it. Right. So one of the famous, you know, so uh, the question was, why didn't God tell them what was the hardest mitzvah for them? And the answer was because they never asked. As soon as God offered their Torah, meaning the minute you decide that you're going to put God on trial, right? The other nations all put God on trial. God said, I want to give you my wisdom. They're like, hmm, your wisdom? don't see if that's good or not. Tell us what it says. We're going to second guess God. We're going to decide if God's wisdom is appropriate or not. So God says, you know, what? I, don't, I don't want to play ball with you the minute you're second guessing me, you've already lost the game. So let's get over this really quickly. Let me tell you the hardest thing for you. And then you're going to say no. And then the conversation's over. Because frankly, the minute you look at me in the eyes and you say, God, well, you're offering me the greatest godly wisdom. And I want to determine for myself if that's smart or not. I don't want to be on this date with you either. I want to cut it off at coffee too. I don't want to go to dinner with you i don't want to take a walk with you in the park so let me just make this really easy for both of us i'm going to tell you the thing that's hardest for you and you're going to walk away and we can both call it a, a day right no more you know wasted emotion but the jewish people never asked god we never said well what does it say god you're offering us your wisdom i don't know if i want your wisdom Maybe your wisdom doesn't line up with my personal values, as people today say all the time, right? All the time. Well, the biblical wisdom doesn't really line up with my personal values. So back in the day, the Jewish people were the only people who didn't tell God, like, well, we got to figure out if we want your wisdom. So God's like, all right, you got it. But Rabbi Neftali Yeager, my Rosh shiva for many years, Rabbi Neftali Yeager Shlita, and I believe he said it in the name of one of the Ger rabbis. He said, actually... He said, actually, there was. God did tell them the hardest thing for them to do. Because after the Jewish people said, we accept the Torah, we accept when, when, when they were standing at Mount Sinai, and God said, do you want to be my special people? Do you want to have this relationship forever? Do you want to have my godly wisdom as the kasuba, as the, as the, as the marriage document that will bind you and, and me together in a holy matrimony forever? And we said, yes, we do, God. And then God gave us a mitzvah before the Torah was given. The mitzvah was, you cannot come up the mountain. Hagbel es-hahar. You cannot come up the mountain. And for a Jew, the hardest mitzvah is to see holiness, but to not be able to approach. For some nations of the world, the hardest mitzvah is don't kill. For some nations of the world, the hardest mitzvah in the world is don't steal. For some nations of the world, the hardest mitzvah is don't commit adultery. For the Jewish people, you know what the hardest mitzvah is? See holiness, but recognize that it's not your time or place to approach it. Hagbel esahar, Do not climb up the mountain. Recognize your place. And this is the failure of Nadav and Avihu. Their failures, they loved God and they wanted so badly to express it, but they forgot that when it comes to God, you don't control the reins in this relationship. He does. And you follow his lead before making an intimate move on him, before rushing into his house with a sacrifice. So that is the story of Nadav and Avihu. Now, where do we see it today? Let's see if we can come up with some modern day applications of this issue. So I'll give you a couple of different examples. Number one, in our personal relationships, we see this often where people just open up emotionally very quick to other people, right? You ever seen that sometimes, you know what I'm talking about? Like you meet somebody and within like 10 minutes, they're just like spilling all their emotional history in their bag and you're like, whoa, hold on a second, hey, We just met this is getting weird now right this is getting weird now like that when you open up to somebody like that emotionally without again it's one thing if they're a clergy if they're a rabbi if there is a psychologist then that's appropriate that's a professional relationship and that's what those people are there for but if you're in a relation if you just met somebody and you start spilling like emotional details that is often an inappropriate overreach or Today, unfortunately in society, people get physically involved with each other way before there's a real readiness for that. There's no respect for getting to know the person. There's no respect for the relationship and it starts getting emotionally, physically involved, right? That's another big problem today that causes a lot of destruction in our society. You know, I met somebody and when I met him, I think he was probably about a year or two before his divorce. And he was just such a, he's such a great guy. And I couldn't understand. He was married to somebody so different than him. He was like, he was so warm and effusive and he wanted a family with children and all that. And this person he was married to was very, very cold, very, didn't want any children. And I was like, I said to him one time, I said to him, Bob, I said, this is the other guy, Bob. There's a a few Bobs. I said to him, Bob, like what happened? How are you guys married? And he said, he said, our, "We we just rushed in, you know, in the emotional intimate side so fast, and if we didn't, our intellect wasn't there, and before we knew it, we were married, and then the intellect set in, and like we're like, wait a second, we were not appropriate for each other at all, and they got divorced, and Baruch Hashem, this particular person is now remarried to a wonderful, wonderful, warm, warm, wonderful young lady, and they have children, and Baruch Hashem, a beautiful family." So that's examples of where we rush in. We get our, our skis get ahead of us, as they say, you know, when you when you ski down the mountain or you snowboard down the mountain, if you put too much weight in the wrong area, your skis just start getting ahead of you and you just, just wipe out. But another example of this, even in the matters of kedushah, of holiness, of connection with God, often we try to bite more than we can chew in our relationship with Hashem. Right. So let's say we get inspired. We go to a class and we get inspired or we meet a family and we see the way they're practicing and we're so inspired and we're inspired. We want to be like them. We want to grow. We want to do that. And what ends up happening, though, is that often we get so inspired, we get so, you know, head over heels that we take on a really, really big, big commitment. And then what happens? We bring a big offering and then we get burnt. Because we were so emotionally, we were so caught up in the moment that we weren't respecting where the relationship is. We're like, I'm gonna do this. And really, that's the evil inclination telling you, go do this. Yeah, come on, you love your Judaism. Yeah, you may have never kept Shabbos before in your life, but why don't you start keeping the entire Shabbos? Now you're know, like all day. Don't worry about doing maybe just Friday night. Don't worry about just doing, you know, uh, you know, or how about this? You, You're going to make blessings on everything now. You've never made blessings before, but you heard there's this Jewish thing. You're supposed to make blessings before food. You're going to make blessings before every single food. Not slowly. Not I'll make a blessing on the first drink I drink in the morning. Or I'll make a blessing on on whenever I eat bread or whatever. No, no, no. Let's go all in. Let's go all in. Because I think it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. Jews, they like, bless God for everything they eat. And it really is, by the way, so amazing and so beautiful. It's so incredible that before we eat anything, we stop and say, this is a gift, right? Like, wow. Oh, by the way, I already made a blessing. That's why I didn't, uh, I've had sips before. But yeah, but the point is like, it's, it's so you say, oh yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a super Jew. I'm going to just take on the whole Shabbos. I'm going to take on all the blessings. I'm going to take on all, do all this. And the are was like, yeah, man, go for it. The evil inclination is like, yeah, go for it. Go do all that. Because he knows you're going to rush in with this incredible gift and you're going to burn out. So those are some practical examples of this story that happened okay that is idea number one that i want to share with you now idea number two after the children of nadav and avihu the children of aaron die nadav and avihu die so they've got these two bodies now in the temple so there's a whole like there's a whole process where aaron tells their cousins to take out the the, the dead bodies and um and Moshe gives them very specific instructions. Normally, when a person you know, sits Shiva or when a person is mourning for their lost loved ones, they have to take on a lot of strict laws, you know, we, during, the, during the Shiva, especially. During Shiva, you know, people don't shower during Shiva. We don't, we, we let our hair and our beards grow for the full shloshim, for the full 30 days. We don't get a haircut. We don't you know, shave our heads, shave our hair, shave our faces, whatever it is. You know, we have to rip our clothing. There's a lot of things that we have to do. But specifically here, Moshe says, Vayomer Moshe al Moshe says <laughs> to Aaron, and to Elazar and Isamar his children, the remaining children, Roshechem al-Tifra'u. Your heads, you shall not, sh- you shall not let, you know, let run wild. Right, Meaning, don't not cut your hair. Um, and you shall... Um, and don't cut your clothing like we normally do. And that, would, that could cause a very bad effect. And all the rest of your brethren, the Jewish people will mourn the great conflagration that the Lord hath brought. So the idea is that Moshe is saying specifically to Aaron and his children, you should not observe the normal laws of Shiva, but that teaches us that when normally, we, when someone does pass away, we have a very, very elaborate Shiva. And we show an enormous amount of respect to a dead body. And we have a Shiva process that's very, very intensive. So there's a great rabbi named Rabbi Yaakov Skeely. He was a student of the 13th century early commentator known as the Rajba And he wrote a sefer, a book, called Torahs HaMincha. And he asks about, in general, about Jewish death and dying. He says, on one hand, we show enormous deference to a dead body. Excuse me, we'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. Enormous deference for a dead body. We bury it with great honor and great dignity. On the other hand, we believe that a body, a Jewish a dead body, actually has the highest possible level of tumah, the highest possible level of ritual impurity. Of all, an animal carcass is way less ritually impure than a human carcass. Like a human carcass is actually called avi havos hatumah, the, the grandfather of ritual impurity. It, it's the most ritually impure you can get. So if we're showing it so much deference, why is it so ritually impure, right? Is there holiness to the dead body? Is there not holiness? Like, what is the deal with how the Jewish people treat the dead body? Now, I actually literally, 20 minutes before I started this class, I called somebody. You know, the Jewish people are just so absolutely amazing. The Jewish people, (laughs) I, I feel so insanely blessed to be part of this nation. We have so many different things, so many different institutions that are just institutions of chesed, right? Whether it be Hatzalah, the volunteer ambulance corps that is all over the world, saves thousands of lives all the time. Just now, over Florida, there was about a hundred thousand Jews that were down in Orlando for Pesach, okay? Like a hundred thousand Jews. It's almost as many as the Exodus, you know what I'm saying? And they literally set up like a a very elaborate um, Hatzalah in Orlando in case anybody needed to be saved. And indeed, They had to actually medevac a child. I know that on the first days of Yomptiff, they had to medevac a child out. The the child, unfortunately, had fallen into a pool. It's very important. You know, when people go visit Orlando, most people don't have pools year round. If they live in the Northeast, they don't have pools year round. And then suddenly they're up in Florida and they're not as accustomed to having a pool. And there could be, I mean, even in our family, you know, we've had times where we're going swimming with the kids. If you're not eagle eyed, if you're not watching, I mean, terrible things, you know, kids can, I mean, Baruch Hashem, you know, like, you know, nothing's ever happened in my family, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Har, but I'm saying like, some we've had some close calls. We've had some real scares. So there was a child, unfortunately, that had to be medevaced, um, you know, with a, with, with a helicopter to a, a local hospital or a further away hospital to deal with, you know, whatever. I, I don't know what the result, and I don't know what happened to the child, and I, I hope he recovered well, Amir to Hashem. But the point is, there was there was a infrastructure there. If they were relying on the Orlando infrastructure, the kid might not be alive today, but there was a Hatzalah there. There was hundreds of Hatzalah members who were down there with their, with their walkie talkies. And there was always somebody within five minutes of anybody. And they were able to get in there and they had the equipment and they were able to, hopefully, you know. again, I don't know what happened to that child, but I'm saying like, the point is there was the infrastructure there. Over here, there's a group called chavirim You have that in many, 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 many cities. The word chavirim means friends. One of the friends, the friends of the people, who will get you out of a bind. It's, it's like AAA, but it's a million times faster, and it's free, and it's done by kindly people who just want to help out. It's insane. Like my <laughs> my family, unfortunately, over the winter we, we, we had to call Chaverim a couple times. Um, you know, whether for a jump start or somebody was driving one of our cars and uh, they turned a corner. It was right after one of the fresh snowfalls and. And the car slipped and it ended up like you know some people put like these big boulders on their front yard to make sure that no one tries to park on their lawn or whatever so like literally my car being driven by someone else ended up riding up on a boulder they had to get like they literally had to like jack, because they couldn't just pull it out because it was like lodged on the boulder. So they had to like jack up the whole car and then pull it. And of course, it had to go right away to the shop where it spent a good two weeks because no part, all the parts were on back order. This is when they had those, those uh, snowstorms that were crippling all the supply chains. Anyway, Baruch Hashem, the bottom line is we have this organization called Haver that is just there to help people for free. You don't need to be part of AAA if you live in a major area. You just, you just call Haverim, and they'll be there so much faster. AAA comes out. You're waiting an hour in the cold, and they get there, and they got these charges and fees. I can only take you four miles. This is five and a half. I've got to charge you $75 for the tow, and then another $20 for the first mile, and $5 for each additional mile. You I'm saying, this is Haverim. They're just here. We're here to help. We're Haverim. We're, we're friends. Haverim, call Yisrael v'nomar amein. right? No one else in the world has this right? We have High Lifeline and Biker Cholim camps for children with cancer and the armies of people. You know, My father-in-law was in the hospital before he passed away in New York and my wife and I went to go spend. Uh, we, we were very, very honored. We got to spend the last Simchas Torah, Shemini Atzeris and Simchas Torah, the last days of Sukkot, the holiday in the hospital with my father-in-law about a week and a half before he passed away. And it was, it, 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 first, of all, it was obviously a very powerful and amazing experience, and we were so uh, fortunate to be able to spend those, those last days with him, those last, that last holiday with him, but the, there was a room in the basement of this hospital. That was a beaker cholem room, and in that room, you don't understand, not only did they have like refrigerators stocked with foods and snacks of every kind, they had a warmer. They had a warmer there. They knew it was a two-day yomtif. They stocked the warmer. We had hot food. The whole yomtif hot chicken, and meat, and, and, and potato kugel. Like, it was, and there was a home, there was a home. You know, We have that in Detroit too, right near Beaumont. There's somebody who bought a house near Beaumont so when people come in from out of town because they've got a child or somebody in Beaumont or whatever it is, or even somebody from in town, but they're far away, and they, you know, they're going to have to spend Shabbos. They can't drive in and out, back and forth. Someone bought a house near Beaumont so that people could come and visit with people on Shabbos and Yomtev. We were in a house. It was right near this hospital. I forgot what the name of the hospital was. It was literally back to back with the, air, the, 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 the parking lot of the hospital. And there was multiple different rooms. Over the course of Tiv, We again, we were there for about uh, for two days. For two days, Yomtev, Sheminiyad Zeres and Sifat Torah. There were multiple other people staying there. This was a maybe a five-bedroom house. And they had four be- maybe a four-bedroom house. And they literally, there was multiple people who had family members in the hospital. And we were all spending our time in this house. You know, We were given unit A. And they were given unit B and C. When you came in, you were given the combination to the lock and the room, the, the house the people were so thoughtful. The house even had like the Jewish magazines, the Mishpacha and the Ami and the Bina, and the, you know, like they had these like Jewish magazines so you could have what to read over Yom Tov. It, it was, and then the house had Kiddush food and like the sensitivity. Where else in the world do you see this Mika Amcha Yisrael? So one of the amazing things that we have also is a Chavruta Kadisha. Many cities have a Chavruta Kadisha with dedicated teams, depending on different cities, volunteers or paid people, whatever it is. Who, who take care of bodies after they pass away. Now, over, over Pesach, I was schmoozing with somebody who's just, it, it's the unsung heroes of Klai Yisrael. It's the unsung heroes of Klai Yisrael. I was speaking with this man. This man for 30 years has been part of the Hevra Kadisha. He does it on a strictly volunteer basis. He started, he joined the Hevra Kadisha. The Hevra Kadisha is the, the Holy Burial Society. He joined it after his mother passed away or his mother-in-law 30 years ago and they saw what honor and how respectful and what dignity they showed to the body. He said, I want to be part of this. For 30 years now, he goes in all the time for free at eight o'clock at night, at 10 o'clock at night, whatever it is. And and, and, and they go and they take care of a body. And he was describing to me the, the incredible respect they show the body. They don't talk during the tahara. Okay? During the, 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 the purity process, the process of cleaning the body, of cleansing the body and preparing it, they don't talk. Forget about they don't listen to music. You know what I'm saying? You go to a city morgue, right? These people are sitting there listening to like, I don't know, whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever the, the latest pop culture is, which is, is just insanely sad right now. Like, if you're listening to local pop music, whatever the most popular music right now, it, it, it is depraved beyond imagination, right? So today, you know, you have people sitting there they got their Spotify playing on their on their little Bluetooth, you know, speaker and who knows what's playing in the morgue while they're cleaning the body and they're calling their friend they got a Bluetooth, yeah, what's up? How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. In the Jewish in the Chevra Kadisha, you don't bring your cell phone in. Your cell phone's off to the side. No, there's no cell phone. There's no talking. They don't even talk with each other. Hey, do you hear the ball game? No talking. The only thing you're allowed to say is if you're talking, can you please pass me the, uh, you know, whatever items they need or to talk about what order they should do it in, whatever it is. The only thing they talk about is how to properly take care of this body. But other than that, there's no conversation whatsoever. The room is an absolute silence and a reverence for the body. And they wash the body. they wash it so carefully in a very prescribed manner and they and they they make sure if let's say for example that there were sometimes people come from the hospital and there's still tubes in their body they remove all the tubes and then sometimes there was uh you know there's some adhesive right They let's say they had on their body some kind of adhesive because there was like a a medical tape holding down like a tube or something so they remove all the extra little adhesive and then they 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 um, they clean beneath the fingernails and the toenails and and the, the whole Absolute reverence. They show that the they show the body and they put the body in the mikvah and like they wrap it lovingly in beautiful, you know, in white clothing and in special dignified white clothing, right? Again, not a word is spoken. Absolute kavod on mace, absolute honor for the for the deceased one. And again, this is being done by people who, who, who are doing it with reverence and dedication. So on one hand, we show such reverence to the body. On the other hand, you say it's totally tamay. It's the most highest level of ritual impurity. It's the great grandfather. It's the the grandfather of ritual impurity. How do you explain this? Explains the Torah He says, number one, we are showing hakaras hatov. We are showing our absolute gratitude to the body that hosted somebody for all these years. Now, we know that the neshama, we believe, of course, that the soul is eternal. And as soon as someone passes away, the soul traverses to the Olam Ha'emes, to the world of truth. But in this world, that body carried that person for 70, 80 years. How much appreciation do we need to show? You know, the Torah says, the Torah says something fascinating. In Devarim, in Deuteronomy 23.8, Chav Gimel Ches, the Torah says, Don't despise the Egyptian because you lived in his land. You were a guest in his land. Now, mind you, you remember how they treated us. They didn't, they, let's put it this way. They didn't give us the Ritz-Carlton treatment, right? They turned us into slaves. They threw our children into the water. But we had 200 years, whatever, that we lived in their land, many of them peacefully. You shall not despise the mitzri and the Gemara on babakama davtadik Bey's, Ahmed Bays, the tractate babakama 92b says from here we learn bira de shasis mine lotishdi bekala the the well that you drink water from don't throw a rock into that well you just gain benefit from that well don't throw a rock into the well in the same way yes we believe that the soul is eternal and the soul left this body but this body carried this person around for 70, 80 years. What an incredible kindness did this physical body do to that human being. We have to show it absolute deference, deep, deep, deep appreciation. And we see always in Judaism that we show appreciation even to inanimate objects. Moshe could not strike the Nile River to start the blood plague or the frog plague. Aaron did that. Why couldn't Moshe strike the Nile River? Because when he was a baby, he was put into the river and the river protected him as a child. The well that you drink from do not throw a stone into, even if it's an inanimate object. Moshe couldn't strike the ground because he used the ground to hide the Egyptian that he killed who was trying to kill a Jew and and it covered for him for at least one day. So you can't now hit the the ground. This body carried somebody around for so many years and kept him going and beat faithfully, the heart beat faithfully and the kidneys cleansed faithfully for so many years, you show with the ultimate respect right now out of a karas to that body. Yes, the soul is the most important thing and the soul has gone on to heaven, but this body deserves its due measure of respect. That's idea number one. Idea number two from the Torah Samincha. it's painful for the deceased one if it sees its body being desecrated. Imagine you lived in a house for 30 years. And then you you, you sold the house. But then someone comes in, the next day a developer comes in, and they start taking backhoes and they're destroying your house. I have a very close friend of mine. He lived in a house, his childhood home for a long time. And then he saw a for sale sign, and then he saw a sign they were gonna demo it. And he reached out to the, the, the people who owned it and they let him walk it for one last time. And then I, he sent me a video. He literally, he, they told him when they were gonna be demolishing it. And he, he came, he spent, it took about you know, two hours with these hose to just tear apart the whole house. He watched the whole thing, it was very difficult for him. He grew up in that house. I myself, every time, you know, not every time, but often if I'm in Cleveland, I try to go by my childhood home just to see it. I spent a lot of years, a lot of formative years there. And if God forbid, I saw someone you know, knocking it down, there would be a little bit of pain to it. So we have a concept, the soul went on to the next world but it can still see and it still sees how you're treating the body that took, that was its home for so long. It doesn't wanna see you discarding it. It doesn't wanna see you throwing that body into a fire. Right? You know. Today, unfortunately, it's become so common for, for people to, um, you know, to, to, to to burn our dead bodies, right? And it's very painful for the soul. They're like, no, 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 that, that was my house for the last 70 years. Don't burn it. Please show it some respect. So it's painful for the neshama to see that going on. The third idea from the Torah Semencha, the way we show respect for the dead is a way for us to remind everybody there's a concept called ha-mesim. this body is coming back we believe in the resurrection of the dead it's the 13th of the 13 attributes of faith <laughs> hold on i'll pull it up right now The exact language. whenever i try to think of anything i pretty much can't remember what it is but the 13th attribute of faith that we believe right of the of the, the Maimonides principles of faith is that we believe that God is going to bring back all the dead and we're going to come back and live in the in our bodies again. Here it is, I believe with a complete faith that there will be a resurrection of the dead when the will comes before the rabbanu shalom, the God, the blessed be He. And his remember memory will, will be uplifted forever and ever for all of eternity. So we believe that we're coming back. That's why, again, we, we, we don't we don't burn dead bodies because they gotta come back. We treat them with great respect. We want them to be able to come back. Of course, obviously we, we understand that most dead bodies are gonna are gonna deteriorate. We do believe that certain very, very holy tzadikim, because they they purified and refined even their bodies so much by being so holy and pure that their bodies don't rot. And we have stories indicating that they opened up, whether by mistake or on purpose, um, uh, tombs of great, great rabbis who have been dead for decades or hundreds of years. And they were literally untouched. The Vilna specifically was famously, his, his tomb had to be moved because they were, they were building a, a gymnasium there in Lithuania and they, they had to remove his tomb. And they said, not only was he not at all decomposed, but there was still water from the mikveh on his beard. So the way we show this respect is the idea we believe this body is coming back. We're not going to mistreat it. So that's the idea. There's a future for this body. We want to treat it well. So those are the three ideas brought down by of HaMencha. But why then is it so ritually impure? Says the of Mincha, because we treat it with such respect, it could possibly lead people to believe that the body is everything, that there is no soul, that maybe the reason why we're showing the body so much deference is because that's all there is. So, for the, on the same token, on one end we show our respect to the three reasons we gave: hakaras atov, gratitude to the body that carried you for 70 years, or so it shouldn't cause pain to the person who's in shemayim watching their former home be manhandled. Or out of showing proof that we believe is a mason, we got to take care. We believe there's a resurrection of the dead. We got to take care of the body, and make sure it's taken care of properly. On the other hand, though, because we show so much deference for the dead, people might be. I don't know. That's just, that's that's all there is. So therefore, we actually make the dead body to have total high, high, high level of ritual radioactivity. It's got the highest level of ritual impurity. So you should know. Ultimately, this is just a vessel. And that vessel is empty, but the real person has gone on to the next world. And that's where the purity of the person lies is in the next world. Whatever's left behind is ritually impure because we want everyone to remember that whatever's left behind is not who he is. He is in heaven right now. So that is sort of the interesting dichotomy we find with how we treat our, uh, the, our beloved people uh, you who know, are past. And that pretty much covers it for today. Thank you so much for coming and being awesome participants. And may you all have a wonderful Shabbos. Take care. I'm going to unmute you. Hold on a second.